You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, President Trump has announced tariffs on steel and aluminum. And uh, the one thing that I've taken away from it is if anyone is saying anything absolutely definitive about the tariffs, they're probably wrong. Um, when we get to talking about the effect of something like a tariff on international trade policy as a whole, it gets very sticky very quickly and there are a lot of uh, peripheral issues that come into play. So we decided rather than try to uh, make a big sweeping statement about what IATP thinks, uh, that we instead would just discuss the issue and try to get at some of the complications around talking about the effects of tariffs in any sort of uh, definitive way. I'm joined by Sophia Murphy, Karen Hansen-Kuhn, and IATP Executive Director Juliette Majel. So, Sophia, let's let's start um, on your end. Um, you've done a lot of writing about the World Trade Organization, and I think at IATP are one of the um, most vocal proponents of uh, the rules-based multilateral system. Let's start this by uh, talking about how these tariffs um, are, uh, how these tariffs uh, fit into the grand scheme of the WTO and why uh, it creates a sticky situation there. So, good morning. Um, I, I, so there are several dimensions to the tariffs, I think, uh, in relation to the World Trade Organization that are worth mentioning. One is that the point of the WTO is it's meant to be a place where countries can bring their concerns and challenges, whether they're domestic or in relation to another member, and discuss them before they necessarily act. And so one of the things that's caused a lot of consternation is that these tariffs have been announced unilaterally. And um, there are lots of loopholes and ways in the system if you want to start to slow down trade or block trade, even with the WTO rules. But this is a fairly um, aggressive way, if you like, the, the, the choice of the Trump administration to put on these pretty high tariffs um, it, without consultation or discussion at the WTO and without resorting to some of those quieter methods, if you like, to slow trade is a fairly direct uh, message to say that the U.S. is going to put its domestic politics ahead of the interests of the system. And the other, other part of it is that in invoking national security as the reason, they've kind of used the big get out of jail free card that the system provides. So when you sign into an international treaty, countries of course are careful to protect their sense of sovereignty that says, you know, if, if something dreadful happens, I have to put my country's interests first. Um, and in this case, there isn't really a national security case to be made. And so the U.S. has invoked this, um, the government has invoked it without cause, which opens the door to lots of other governments and lots of other countries to perhaps take the same step. Explain just real quickly why, in your opinion, it's better to have the multilateral rules-based system than what the U.S. is doing, which is each country acting in their own best interest. I would you know, I recognize that there are a lot of flaws, both in the way that the WTO is conceived and assuming that trade or economic integration is better than allowing countries more policy space for their national projects. But I think that because of the imbalances of power in the world, 
it actually makes sense, especially for smaller and um, less powerful countries to have a place where they can meet and discuss and organize themselves together to deal with larger economic powers like the US. And I also think that the stability in the system is important because people with fewer options, people who live in poverty, people who are in less privileged parts of the world um, have fewer ways to protect themselves when things go wrong. And that providing even an imperfect rules-based system is one of the ways we generate more stability and we protect more vulnerable people. I guess I would just add, I mean, it is a complicated question. You know, IETP, like many, many other civil society organizations, has been critical of the WTO over the years and critical of many of the trade agreements like NAFTA. And, and we continue um, to be very critical about both the process and the rules. Uh, in a lot of those cases. But, you know, I guess that what it comes down to, I think, is that either you have rules in a system like the WTO, that's, you know, one forum, or you allow multinational corporations or the most powerful interests to just dictate the rules and there'd be no consistency. And I would, and, and there would be different rules applying in different situations. And I think some of our concern right now is maybe we're heading in that direction, you know, of not engaging with the rules, not trying to find a better way. Um, I think it is totally legitimate to have processes that might end up in tariffs, you know, when some actors are breaking the rules. I mean, that's something we've advocated on, on food security grounds for a number of years. Um, but the way this is happening, the way it's so abrupt, and ignores the processes that are in place. And as Sophia says, very imperfect, um, but definitely, I would say better than nothing and better than the alternatives um, is, is really problematic. I, I, I certainly, I, I agree with, um, with Karen and, and with Sophia on, on much of what they said. I think it's really important to look at these particular tariffs in the context of the Trump administration and in the context of an American president who is very clearly consolidating power uh, in a number of different ways. Um, his use of a national security argument to justify these tariffs, um, I think is probably his Achilles heel. Um, as much as it is a get out of free card, get out of jail free card, as Sophia talked about it, um, it's not being viewed as credible, I don't think, um, internationally, because it looks like an economic safeguard. And the WTO has provisions and rules about economic safeguards. And um, I, I, an another writer said the words, you know, it looks like an economic safeguard. It feels like an economic safeguard. It acts like an e economic safeguard. It probably is. Um, the, his, uh, uh, as we all know, in, um, in the in the presidential order um, for tariffs, uh, Canada and Mexico um, have been kind of given a buy on this, um, even though he, they were initially listed as being part of the security, um, this, the national security argument. Uh, I think something like twelve percent of of steel is coming in from from Mexico and Canada and when you add the EU into that it's maybe more than a third of the steel that's coming in so the actual amount of the imports are are going down um, as well and if the I think the important thing is is that 
if the EU, for example, is able to make a case that this is not national security, um, but is an economic safeguard, then they, they can take steps um, to rebalance the trade between the EU and, and, and the US. I, I think the national security argument um, is being seen as, as cynical. Um, and Sophia mentioned that, that um, you know, it shows that the US is really more concerned with domestic politics. Um, I think that's absolutely true and much more domestic politics than, than domestic uh, economy. Per se, I mean, this these tariffs um, very transparently are there so that President Trump um, can make a public campaigning type of case that he cares about jobs in the steel industry. Um, how much these tariffs will actually address that is uncertain, and the downside of this is that it does erode and corrode um, the kind of rules that the WTO has specifically to try to um, avoid the kind of trade wars that come with a rebalancing, um, et cetera. The tariffs also are symbolic and have this historic role. We, everyone invokes, you know, Smoot-Hawley in the 1930s and all these things, but, but the fact that our integration has advanced so much, even in the last 10 years, let alone 20 years, the WTO has been around, also means that, that the tariff on a single good has a very different effect than it might have had 50 years ago. And because we use steel to produce other things and the, and the, the way we have value chains established across different borders also means that Trump can get some political effect out of this perhaps. But it, it, it also suggests to me that he's not that interested in the economic impact mm -hmm. either because it is very complicated to achieve what he wants to achieve what he said what he says he wants to achieve in relation to jobs using a tool which in some ways is you know it, it has some merit but it's fairly outdated i was thinking this morning it's kind of like if you have a broken leg and you just put a cast on it the cast could be like the terrorist but you don't reset the bone you don't fix it the underlying problem is still there the bone's still going to be weak once you take the cast off. Tariffs can be, I mean, generally when we talk about tariff protections, you know, we've talked about special safeguard mechanisms for food safety, and they are temporary, you know, until things get back into shape. Um, and so I guess what's kind of one thing, one other thing that's concerning about all of this is I don't hear any proposals for some kind of industrial strategy to actually resolve the problem of either steel or related industries so that people do have decent jobs, you know, so that we do have enough steel for what we need produced in the right way, or perhaps that we decide we need to be emphasizing something else. So having this temporary protection in the absence of some kind of industrial policy just seems cynical and, and short-sighted. So I, I absolutely agree with you, and I think you know, Trump likes to rail on about the trade deficit. But one of the reasons that countries like Germany and China have trade surpluses is that they actually do have industrial policy that promotes exports, you know, whether or not you think that's a good thing. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to get back to kind of this question about um, the rules based system and the balance, because I think I would argue that uh, a big reason Trump won uh, the presidency is because people saw these global systems as kind of undermining democracy or at least undermining their ability to have a say in their own lives and there was this violent emotional reaction um, 
you know, it's traumatic, right? To think all of your power is getting taken away from you. So I, what I'm, I want to uh, ask about what your thoughts are on like, so where's the balance between having multilateral international institutions and protecting small d democracy? So I, I would say that we face a lot of challenges, you know, the simple one to pick is climate change because it's so obviously global. But I think we face a lot of challenges on a on a smaller level as well, if you like, around water systems or uh, air quality, where where we can't look to our national government to provide the answer. We have to look often, and and we do in very creative ways, look to smaller units of government, and we see a lot of innovative experiments happening at the city level or the county level or the um, you know, three or four states together level. Um, but we also have to look across borders and we need to learn how to do that. And we have, you know, there are lots of experiments that go on. I, I suppose I feel that we need many different places to take our struggles. And if we were, you know, coming out of a, a period of dictatorship or a period of, of, you know, where our state governance or democracy had failed, we also would have a different relationship with the multilateral or if we were indigenous peoples, if we were, if we were first nations, as we call them in Canada, and we were um, looking for a different relationship with the government that was sovereign in the land where we lived, but didn't treat us the same way for all sorts of historic reasons, the, the multilateral level becomes less of a threat and more of an opportunity. And I guess, although I see that a lot of the ex economic experiments we've had multilaterally have been closing out political space. Um, I don't think that's a necessary consequence. And I think we could learn from other kinds of policy, other, other areas of, of cooperation, and rethink our economics and our economic relationships. But I think we will have to do that in part across borders. Yes, I think, I think too, is we have to remember that um, we're not dealing in absolutes. Um, in many ways. I mean, remember that before Trump picked up on this trade argument um, and, and fed it into his um, uh, kind of well-honed stump speech that appealed to particular kinds of voters, um, that, that many progressive uh, uh, think tanks and organizations worldwide um, have been, who are social justice organizations and very interested in rights, have been fighting um, many, many aspects of trade agreements for a long time. Certainly the context has changed since the WTO was, was um, first came into, into being, but the demands at the time in some ways remain the same. Uh, trade agreements, if they really are about trade itself, um, and have rules in or that are there in order to encourage um, uh, thoughtful and fair trade that is good economically and politically across the boards for any partner involved in that agreement, then, then, um, then the, the, the inevitable hit on, on what we think of as democracy is much smaller than if the trade agreements contain within them um, endless amounts of rules about regulations, um, for example, or what's being called 
um, that beautiful soft term regulatory harmonization or regulatory cooperation. These are soft, beautiful language words that make people feel that they might be a good thing when in fact they are there. Um, uh, they would box us in to a particular level of regulation and not allow us out of that box um, and are very anti-democratic. Another aspect to it um, and, and one that I think uh, a lot of people really objected to and thought perhaps Trump was talking about, but he was not talking about it, is the, the manner in which trade agreements are negotiated. Um, the, and then we're talking about democracy just at the level of transparency, of understanding what those kind of agreements involve, of the abrogation of, the con of, of congressional oversight um, over trade agreements, um, the, the uh, fast track agreement, which gives so much authority to the president and takes away the responsibility and therefore accountability of the Congress and overseeing trade agreements. There are a lot of ways that trade needs to have rules and there are ways to go about it that in fact um, can help contribute to democracy, not just at the domestic level. I think there is a, uh, it's extremely important that people expand their thinking about democracy outside of the sovereign, uh, outside of the sovereign nation, that, we're, that we have governance arrangements uh, at multiple levels, at local levels, at municipal levels, at state, federal, national, and we have many governance arrangements at uh, a multinational or multilateral level um, that, that are, are there for, should be there for the public good. You know, when we think about what's needed, it's not like this is totally new territory. You know, as Sophia said, there's a lot of consensus around the notion that we should encourage innovations at the most local level possible, rather than restricting them, which is where trade agreements tend to be heading in recent years. Um, but I think it's also true that, you know, civil society groups have been at this for a while now, and there are alternatives out there. You know, it's not like we have some huge problem and nobody knows what to do about it. There are some fairly unified proposals about how the process could be different, how the content could be different. It's not like there's a blueprint, um, but there is a lot of good thinking that's occurred and that also has evolved to respond to the current situation. Um, but that is a, a holistic uh, consensus-based approach, which is pretty much the opposite, you know, of what we're seeing from the Trump administration, which is reactive. And, you know, it's often not clear what'll come next. Like even with NAFTA, you know, we hear maybe the U.S. will withdraw, maybe it won't. If it does, nobody really knows what would happen. There's no plans. So I think, um, like I said, there are, there are these alternatives out there. There is a lot of thinking, a lot of uh, coalitions of groups in different countries that have been coming together to say how to move forward. I, I, yeah, I would just jump in to say, and I, and I think that that gets to another deeper level of, of, of economic transformation, really, that I think we have to grapple. So, so um, th that we can't be looking to create jobs out of everybody consuming more stuff because we're out of stuff to consume and we have no place to put the garbage that results. So there's this other, there's a lot of really exciting thinking happening economically. And for me, um, 
I hope in the big, you know, sort of social transformation scale of things, this administration is a throwback to people scared, to people who've lost a lot of the, um, a lot of the benefits of economic growth were better shared before. And in taking away a lot of the mechanisms that allowed everyone to enjoy the results of that um, prosperity, the, the reaction has been unfortunately one of sort of fear and xenophobia, but I think there are other, other reactions also are visible. And I hope that this other thinking about what kind of world we want to live in will lead us to a different place in terms of what it is, you know, what, what is our economic objective? So building off of that, the, the next question I have is, you know, we've, um, we've talked a little bit about industrial policy. We've talked, you know, IATP has a very strong analysis on supply management and agriculture. And now we're talking about innovation at the local level or the sub-federal level or federal level. If I am an innovator, so I'm thinking of like the electronics industry in Japan, right, where they actually benefited fairly heavily by protecting that industry for a very long time and now they're a leader. So we've talked about the balance in democracy, but what's the balance in being able to do that kind of like productive protectionism versus reactionary protectionism? You know, we've really swung to the other end where it's, it's very difficult to actually, you know, recreate like what, you know, what Japan did or what China is doing to an extent with technology transfers right now. In, in software and other things. Like being able to do that on a mass scale is, is pretty difficult. How do, we, how do we promote that kind of innovation uh, you know, while still adhering to the system of multilateralism? I don't know how I feel about some of the protect or not protect. I think there are lots of different interesting histories around where it's been really successful and where uh, in some ways, when it comes time to transition, it's really hard to transition from protection to not. So when it comes time that either things have gotten locked in or vested interests have emerged, there's something very compelling to me about the dynamism that a market um, can allow, especially a market within a clearly, you know, every market requires rules. Um, and those rules really matter. And I think what we've learned by taking apart a lot of the rules and allowing what we what we what we stopped doing was thinking about redistribution, and we allowed a certain ideological um, wave to to persuade people that somehow the market would redistribute. The market's not very good at that kind of redistribution. And and so I think, but I do think one of the things that's interesting is where the state has invested in technology and where the state has been part of the innovation. And um, one of the examples I can think of in Europe is, is the way that they've used European money to encourage many centers of learning to cooperate, to generate, you know, models or thinking or technologies. And and um, a different kind of example is, is Norway and the way that it's created sovereign wealth funds out of its natural resource and is investing that money in innovation and technology, which is, which is a widely distributed benefit for Norwegians, actually, the spillover positive effects for the world. Um, and that in stark contrast to say, sadly, Canada and the way it exploits its oil, let alone a lot of developing countries where they don't or they've only they've had to fight even to get a share as nations from foreign companies um, exploiting their resources. So I so that's not quite the same as protection, but it is at least saying that the public investment and ownership of knowledge 
U.S. is very good at funding or, you know, generating intelligence, uh, you know, smart knowledge, but then it lets everything get privatized. So, so you've had a period of massive private profit from public investment. And I think a country like France or Japan, which has a different relationship to the state, the state has kept more of the um, benefits of that investment and the societies have, have been able to then benefit from that, profit from that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was thinking the same thing, um, Sophia, and I think that there are examples um, in Norway, also Israel, I believe, um, in, in, and, and around research and development, technology development, um, pharmaceutical development, um, that the, there is um, a very good role for, for the state, and in, I think that there are also models where even, even when that technology is then privatized, there is money that comes back into the public sector from the profits of that privatization to continue to, to share the wealth of, of what that research brings. Yeah, I guess I would just add that, I mean, certainly we can learn from history. Um, you know, what, what Japan did, what um, certain Latin American countries did with import substitution industrialization, but that responded to a particular reality that isn't really the case anymore. I think there, are, but what we can learn, we can look now. And I think one of the advantages we have now is it's so much easier. The world is so much more connected. We can learn in real time what's happening. There's a lot more information available. Uh, one thing we've talked about a bit is, you know, in agriculture and, and specifically in NAFTA, you know, looking at what Canada has done with its dairy supply management program. I think we can learn more about you know, ways perhaps that's not perfect, but it does tend to balance supply and demand, a consumer's interests and producer's interest in Canada in a program that is supported by tariffs. Um, so it's integral to the success of the whole initiative. Now, whether we could replicate that in the United States, I think we probably couldn't do it exactly the same way um, because the Canadian market is so much smaller than the United States. However, you know, we, also, we already have some interesting initiatives in the Northeast and different places around dairy, sort of experiments that aren't complete, but I think could be inspired by the learning from Canada and other places. So I think part of the challenge as we move forward with the trade rules is to make sure that new trade rules on things like regulatory cooperation or interests that want to open up markets no matter what don't cut those innovations short so it sounds like kind of the consensus here is that um it's uh, to be cliche about it a rising tide lifts all boats right there are kind of carrots and sticks that you can do in terms of uh trade policy and the ideas of investing in uh research and development of providing price supports of you know maybe like subsidies um, to put it in a really broad category are uh, a much better use of uh, the uh, state's promotion of its exporting industries or of trade in general than using something like a tariff or protectionist measure what we would call protectionist measures is that more or less am I am I summing that up more or less I would say what Karen is saying is a little bit different, which is that the, 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 the tariffs will also play their part, 
but they have to be part of a bigger strategy. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that the 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 sort of viability of supply management in the WTO system is is very much challenged because um, by forcing everything into a tariff and then setting the tariff very high and then also insisting that a certain amount of import be allowed, the tariff becomes a bit of a weak spot. Like it's it's, it's an obvious place to attack and it's constantly mm-hmm. under attack. Every trade agreement Canada's tried to sign since with anyone who exports dairy, it's found its its program more and more threatened. So so, but I think the point is 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 you have to be thinking about what are you trying to protect and why, and how, mm-hmm. and and um, will will the tariff you know, the, the tariff is just one instrument of many. And so and so how are you thinking about it? I think often, especially as, um, you know, Juliet was talking earlier in the conversation about safeguards, there are many reasons why you might need safeguards to smooth out shocks. And the simplest way to stop or to slow a shock is a measure at the border, like a tariff or, a, you know, an instant, an instant kind of protection that allows you some time to think. And I guess one of the challenges is, are you doing that thinking and do you have a medium and long-term strategy as well and i and i have to say i think the steel tariffs are yeah i think we all kind of have the same opinion about whether or not the trump administration has a medium and long-term yeah strategy there you go go. (laughs) yeah i i um uh the trump administration does have a a a short-term and maybe an even medium-term strategy i think uh and that's to get reelected, and and um and I think that that what we're talking about trade, it's very easy to get into a conversation where we're tra- where where we get kind of wonky and talk about pure trade, or let's talk about you know section two three two, or you know whatever whatever it is that we're 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 talking about. But remembering that that what happens on trade is part of a bigger context, part of a bigger economic context, a political context. Um, it is used as a foreign policy instrument. Um, at, at times, um, it is used as a club, it is used as a threat. And what we have right now with this kind of power consolidation of the, of the US president, um, of President Trump, is to use this, the problem that he is trying to solve is how to get reelected. The problem that he is not trying to solve um, is, is how to um, build a, a, and maintain a robust American economy. Um, for him, the America first, um, first uh, phrase, is a, it's a campaign phrase, it's a vote for me phrase. Um, and, and I think that um, it's incredibly important to remember, this tariff was, was, was kind of pushed by commerce. It, it, wasn't, it, it didn't come out of the United States Trade Representative Office, it came out of commerce. And yet, with these exceptions now, which is also a power consolidation move, oh, come to me, European countries, and I will decide whether or not you're in or out on the, on the tariff business. Right? Who's going to negotiate that? Well, he's he's named Lighthizer as the person who's going to negotiate that, bringing it into the USTR and also giving it a lot more protection um, in terms of being non-transparent and um, kind of under the USTR darkness umbrella, um, as it were. The same with NAFTA. I mean, he, he while while Canada and Mexico are 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 out of this now. Um, um, it, there's still there's still a, a, a you know something hanging right over their head saying as long as I Donald Trump don't get irritated 
about where we're going on NAFTA. And it's not a very, uh, probably not a very smart strategy for the Canadian leadership to appear to be making um, making their decisions based on a, what is basically a threat is, does not put them in very good political standing. So I think, you know, it's a, uh, this tariff, I think, always needs to be considered within the greater political and economic uh, context that we're playing in right now. It has less to do with, with, with jobs than Trump says it does, it has much more to do with power consolidation. Regardless of the tariffs, regardless of kind of the retaliation, it does seem like we're really at a position where, you know, once sanity is restored to the United States government, once Trump is gone, there is going to be this opportunity to, um, to, I feel like there's, there is a lot of political will to renegotiate some of these multilateral rules. What are some of the multilateral rules that would make it easier for redistributionary effects from trade to be felt by everyone? Well, top of my list is still to uh, uh, end or revoke uh, TRIPS, the intellectual property rights protection that just creates rents in an old-fashioned economic <laughs> sense of um, consolidating power where power exists and preventing the kind of distribution and innovation that markets are meant to provide. And there are lots of economists and others who've commented on it. And I think the other big obvious um, the, the whole direction of trade negotiation, which in a way was stopped the day that Trump was elected and chose the next day to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership or TPP, which is that corporations already engaged in international trade are presumed to know what's, what's best for the next step of the regulation. And so it's been increasingly preventing other companies challenging them and therefore undermining again one of the basic premises of the market. So we've been allowing capital to consolidate and uh, existing economic power to consolidate and writing rules to facilitate that instead of to force that to be open. So if 20-30 years ago the push was to end state interventions that seem to create um, paralysis I think, I think that the one, the great thing about this whole conversation is that everyone is now forced, the, the people who assumed that they were just making enough money that it wouldn't have to be justified, have been forced to, to create some arguments and think a bit harder about what they're doing. I don't think Trump has any interest in dealing with inequality or, or those things, but I, that does, that's okay. It has also at least given us all a chance to have that conversation and, as you say, be willing to renegotiate. Well, I, I, I completely agree with, with what um, Sophia, Sophia said, and, and I, of course, would, would, would start right at the beginning for a redefinition of what the objectives of trade are, um, to firmly establish those, those objectives as, as um, if they're there to protect anything, it's to protect what equality and equity there is and to, to build more in, into the world that we're living in and, and in doing and, and while doing that building more more security and predictability into the global economy um, and and from from rewriting those objectives to to then rewriting how trade negotiations are negotiated and and who negotiates them why those people negotiate them um, and how can we make them a more uh, more reflective of, of a democratic uh, form of governance. 
I agree that it's really important that we are all, you know, thinking about where we're trying to go and that the rules then respond to that rather than sort of continuing with the inertia of the past, um, which is about, you know, removing any kinds of restrictions to, to flows of goods or investment. And I guess I would also just add, you know, on investment, there's already a lot of momentum to end or greatly weaken investor state dispute settlement, these corporate tribunals that allow corporations not only to challenge governments over public interest laws, but to blackmail them, not to do certain things at the local level. And whatever happens in the Trump administration, I think there's already a lot of momentum in that direction to to reconsider those rules. Certain countries backing out, other countries in Europe raising some legal challenges. I mean, I would love to see if we could get rid of investor state, then also to move on to reconsidering rules on investment um, generally, because the way investment is dealt with in trade agreements at this point also makes illegal the idea of performance requirements, the idea that governments can require investment to contribute to local development. You know, whatever happens with this administration from one tweet to the next, there is this momentum moving forward on investment um, that I think is positive. All right. Well, Juliet Majot, Karen Hansen-Kuhn, and Sophia Murphy, thanks a lot for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Josh. Our pleasure. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more information on what you've heard today, including the whole trove of IATP's writing on globalization, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. You can also download our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you like what you heard, you can give us a rating. If you don't like what you heard, please don't give us a bad rating. Uh, I want to thank Andrew Arisso, who's editing this podcast, and I hope you all have a good day. Talk to you next time.